Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about things we learned founding schools and how they just might apply in the rest of the world. Today's episode is an American's Guide to English Schools. There have been a fascinating series of books that have come out in the last few years. Clever Lands by Lucy Crean and Amanda Ripley's The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way that you might describe as comparative educational anthropology. The authors in both of these books go out and study other school systems to describe what they do and how it's similar to and different from what we do. And maybe the most comparable example is the schools in England. We share so much of our culture with England, but interestingly, while they do a lot similar, they do so many things differently in England from the way that they assess student learning to the way the teachers are trained. And so you might've heard phrases like GCSEs, A-levels and things like that. So. I invited Adam Boxer and Amy Forrester, who have a podcast of their own. It's called They Behave For Me, an incredibly clever name for a podcast. I invited them on to just tell us a little bit about schools in England and how they work. Part of what's interesting about the podcast is that Amy teaches in the far north of England, outside the Lake District, and Adam teaches just outside London, so they have very different experiences even between them what English schools are like. But I think you'll find the podcast fascinating and revealing, and just maybe it will give you a few ideas for the ways that we can make our own schools better. So without further delay, here are Amy and Adam. Amy Forrester and Adam Boxer, welcome to the podcast. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. I am tentatively calling this an American's Guide to English Education. But before we get into that, I thought I'd just ask you guys to talk a little bit about you have a new podcast of your own. It's fantastic. I'm a devoted listener. It's called They Behave for Me, which I want to hear about because it's possibly the best title for a podcast that I've come across in education. So one of the things that's so interesting about the podcast is that you guys come from such different parts of the country, both geographically and I guess you would say educationally and demographically. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about, Amy, you're in the Lake District, I think. Tell us a little bit about where you live and a little bit about what the schools and schooling are like there. Maybe, Amy, you can kick us off. Yeah. So I'm right in the northwest of England, in Cumbria, in the Lake District, in Cockermouth. It is quite a geographically isolated area. Like to get to a, a, a decent train station is, is quite a while away. A bus might come twice a day if you're lucky. And what it means for the kind of education system around here is that there's quite a big distance in between schools. So traditionally, schools tend to serve a very specific catchment area. But within that, we have a huge demographic. So some students, will be coastal students they'll be quite isolated because of their location we've got a huge population of farming students who come from like an agricultural background we have got lots of poverty and deprivation in certain areas we've also got a lot of affluence in other areas so it's a really interesting makeup very heavily influenced by the the geography of where we are and educationally, I don't think I'll get any trouble saying this, but the general picture in Cumbria as a whole is, is not a great one. The vast majority of schools in our area, there's only four secondary schools with like a positive Progress 8 score. I know we'll get into Progress 8 maybe later on, but the vast majority are are negative and quite negative. And that's a key factor, I think, in the education provision in this area of the country. I think that's interesting. It probably would be surprising to most American listeners that, you know, for schools in our country, the most struggling schools tend to be in urban areas. You know, big city school systems are notoriously problematic. But in the UK, the toughest areas in terms of educational outcomes are often, you said the word coastal. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of American listeners might be imagining, you know, a pretty quaint coastal town. But that's actually where the worst educational outcomes tend to be in the UK. Do you mind just talking about that a little bit? 
Yeah, so you can kind of, even when you look across the coastal part of the, the county, the schools with the most kind of coastal catchment areas also tend to be the schools who are struggling the most or in most challenging circumstances. And it it's interesting what you say about an American audience thinking of like, quaint like seaside towns i think that view exists in the uk as well i think people assume or you know lake district nice coastal towns um, but actually if you go to our coastal towns if you go to whitehaven maryport workington you'll see huge levels of poverty huge levels of deprivation huge levels of isolation and very static communities people don't move out Hello, case in point. And people don't really move into the county so much as into those areas specifically. Anyway, the movement in tends to be to the more affluent areas. So all of that kind of turns it into this very complicated mixing pot. And what, what's interesting nationally, probably the difference really for kind of our schools and maybe kind of where Adam's based, when you look at the kind of Progress 8 scores, the average, like in London, it's almost starting from a positive point, like point two, I think is where they suggest. Whereas around here, we're starting from minus point two. So the starting point is lower in that sense because of the huge underperformance that exists in the area. And we'll come back to explain what Progress 8 means. But Adam, let me throw it over to you. You live and work in a very different part of England. Yeah. So just to build on what Amy said, so a lot of this is like historical and there's a lot of post-industrial type hang-ups and things that have led to the situation we're in. Uh, a lot of the places on the coast around the country, not just in the Lake District, used to be big tourist centers. Blackpool is like one of the worst educational, isn't that the classic case study of... Yeah, it's, it's all over the place. So these places where people used to go and visit to go on holiday, and then now they don't because they can just fly to Greece or Spain or whatever for the same price. And they're now just like, you know, you go and visit these places and it just feels like post-apocalyptic at times where like everything is cracking and falling apart. There are no jobs, there's no investment. And in some places, they try and do these kind of rejuvenation type projects. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But the educational outcomes are so tied up with aspiration. And the simple fact is that a lot of these, a lot of the people living in these communities don't have much by way of aspiration. They, they don't think they're ever going to leave that town. They don't think they're ever going to have a high paid job. They don't see the need to work for that kind of thing. And if you're like, if you're in that position, you're less motivated to do stuff in school. Whereas when you go to the cities, so if you go to an inner city cohort, there's so many first and second generation immigrants who by and large often, not always, but often have really strong work ethics, high aspirations. Well, migration is inherently an aspirational act, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm the descendant of immigrants. We all are to an extent, but you know, you know, I'm Jewish and my entire community is second, third and fourth generation immigrants. And and like that, that those patterns are really, really clear the way they play out over time and feed into the aspirations of the community. So Within the cities in the UK, not, not, not exhaustively and exclusively and completely, but by and large, within the cities, in the inner city cohorts, you have a high number of what we call EAL, so English as an additional language students, so students who brought, were brought up in a home that doesn't speak English. So they might be a first generation or a second generation immigrant, whereas the further you get away from cities, the more and more white working class it tends to become. So whereas my school is like 40, 45% EAL, Amy's is probably less than 10? One. One. Fascinating. Yeah. So approximately half our students did not grow up speaking English. Um, and we, we're on the outskirts of London. So we're not a proper inner city school. So we're kind of halfway between. The further into town you get, the, you know, I was visiting a school on Monday, where I think it would have been something like 80 to 90% black minority ethnic. 
and a similar percentage would have been speaking English as an additional language. Fascinating stuff. So you've already started to use some terminology, EL, Progress 8, that will be unfamiliar to US listeners. I mean, I think one of the fascinating things is how much comparative educational anthropology is happening these days. You know, Lucy Crean has a great book called Clever Lands. Amanda Ripley has a great book called The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. They sort of travel to different countries and study their educational systems. And generally, this is a great thing. Like, well, examine the way we do things and why we do them the way that we do. So I thought I'd ask you to be a bit of our tour guides. But first, I I thought I'd just make the case for why. And you may disagree with this, because as I understand, people from England will never praise England. (laughs) And you you live in the midst of school, so maybe you're skeptical. But English schools, compared to American schools, are arguably quite successful. The most comparable model, but very successful. And I'm just going to throw some data. You can question, you can argue with, you can put an exclamation point on. But the first thing is, you know, Pearl scores. This is um, year four, fourth grade literacy assessment. Therefore, arguably a leading indicator of what's likely to happen in reading. You know, Amy, you made the point on one of your recent podcasts about how much education minister Nick Gibb had done to push the UK to be serious about phonics and do phonics screenings for every student. And suddenly UK is number four in the world, the uh, highest in the West. England. Yes, I'm sorry. Great point. England, because Scotland and Wales are kind of train wrecks from a curriculum standpoint. (laughs) Well, so when you look at UK data, right, this is something a lot of Americans might, you know, UK is... Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and England, and they have very different educational systems. So you could argue probably that England's data is being pulled down by Wales and Scotland, but that even with that, England's England's Pearl scores are exceptional. Highest scoring nation in the West. PISA scores just came out this week. The UK is 14th. The US is 18th. You guys are 14th in math and we are 34th. We're pretty comparable in science. We had a decent year in reading. But in addition to having higher scores than us on the PISA, England has improved steadily on all batteries of the PISA from 27th in 2009 to 17th in 2018, now to 11th. This is in math, similar gains in reading and in science. And then there's a story of the London, what some people call the London miracle, which, you know, London is a massive school system and has performed one of the most impressive turnarounds in quality of a school system of scale in the world. I went to Austria recently, and the researcher that I spoke to there is studying what he called the London miracle to figure out what happened that was so remarkable in the city of London. So that's some of my data just to say that people in the U.S. should pay attention to what's happening in the U.K. educationally. Agree, disagree, or build? <laughs> yeah, I I think that's really interesting because when you are within the system, I don't think we always stop to acknowledge the strengths of the system. And that's why things like PISA data, Pearl's data, some of that gives us some really interesting food for thought. Like you said, when, when you look at sort of comparable places and sort of how we're doing, it's very easy, I think, in our profession as things stand kind of politically, socially in the country, economically, to see a lot of bad and to see things that we're worried about, things we're concerned about, things that we feel slipping, that aren't getting enough support. But actually stepping back, there's actually a really promising data set there that I think reflects a lot of the really positive work that's gone into the education system probably in the last 10 years or so when Adam and I did the the podcast episode and I talked about Nick Gibb, Nick Gibb 
and Michael Gove in their impact, although I am a, a big fan of, of both of them <laughs> and rightly took some stick for that. I do think a lot of what is coming out of that data is because of the work that they've done. Nick Gibbs focus on phonics and then you see the, the phonics data. It's hard to argue that that isn't down to the work he's put into it. I mean, it's fascinating because the phonics conversation is really just starting to happen now in the U.S., and we are so decentralized that getting people to getting school systems to change has been, I mean, I think it's one of the fundamental differences between England and the U.S. is how comparatively centralized the education system is, which I assume can also be problematic. It must drive you crazy sometimes, but it makes intentional coordinated change more feasible. And maybe that's part of what you're seeing in the, in the Pearl's results. But I'm not reading in your tone of voice that you feel that it feels successful to you on the inside. <laughs> on the inside, you're smiling as I say that. Amy. I think there's a lot of things that are really successful that are going well on the whole in, in the British system. But you kind of have to take that with the fact that as a as a system, it, it's massively underfunded. It's under resourced. We are really struggling with the after effects of COVID, with the pandemic, with the knock-on impact on the economy, cost of living, all of those things are having a really profound impact on young people in schools. And I don't think it would be unfair to say that getting help and support for those issues is really difficult because of kind of chronic underfunding of the system. Yeah, it's interesting. There's real austerity budgets in the UK right now around education, and that's not really the case in the US right now. We have a real glut of funding, frankly, post-pandemic. We probably won't forever, uh, but of course, like just, you know, our economies are in different places. So, so it feels, you feel the austerity. Absolutely. Should we do a little shout out for Joe Biden? Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> you can shout out anybody you want, Adam. I'll pass it to you. So do you, do you feel successful? How do you respond, Adam, to the, you know, the, my, my litany of data showing that you're in a better place than we are? Yeah, I'm a bit more hesitant. That's a very English not, response from both of you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think part of that is because what is it that drives the data? So if you talk about the London effect, for example, so there was this big program called the London Challenge that ran in the kind of Tony Blair years and onwards. And it had a whole lot of uh, investment, collaboration between schools. It was a strategy for educational success policy. And it seems to have worked, right? So outcomes improved. But, you know, later analysis isn't necessarily clear about that when it looks back and says, well, how much of that is actually just explained by the fact that you have a larger than normal proportion of ethnic minority students? So it's pointing to these figures and saying, oh, yeah, that's it, or this system is working, is, is always going to be difficult. And like PISA, for example, one could very easily make the point that our scores are, in fact, depressed by the fact that we have so much austerity and the fact that something that Amy and I talk about a lot is that our social security net doesn't exist anymore. So, so the, this country has you know, historically had a social security net, which means that we have an integrated network of education and healthcare and social care. Uh, and general societal and political support across the board. And, and that kind of doesn't really exist anymore. When we refer a student to what's called CAMS, which is the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, the waiting list can run into the, the months, you know, six months, a year, 18 months. You know, Amy will know these numbers better than I do because this is her bread and butter. This is what she does. But like, it won't be uncommon for us to call up CAMS and say, right, well, a student is experiencing suicidal ideation. Can you see them? And they'll be like, yeah, sure, in six months' time. Yes, 18 months, yeah. Yeah, and Amy will be way more familiar with this kind of stuff than I am. So, uh, you know, I don't know. And, and the US is also such a big country. You know, you are five times the size of us as a country in terms of your population and seriously disparate. So London, like Amy said, has, you know, amazing outcomes, but the rest of the country doesn't. So it's not 
necessarily the case. If you look at the top performing schools for Progress 8, the majority of them are inner city cohorts. The majority of them are London with one or two exceptions. So it's not as straightforward. And the, the lead times are really long as well. So when everyone is like going on and about, you know, Finland, for example, you know, you remember this eight, nine, 10 years ago, everyone was going, Finland, 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 let's be like Finland. But what they really should have done is looked at what Finland was like 10 years before that, because that's how long educational interventions take to come in. Like I'm convinced that systematic synthetic phonics is a good thing and it will improve outcomes overall. But how long will it take for that to percolate and feed through into the rest of the system? We've still got a number of years left on that. And there's other changes as well that we just don't know what the effect is going to be. I strongly, strongly suspect in whenever PISA do their next drop, so four or five years, normally the normally the wait, um, I strongly suspect our results will decline. Partly, or not even necessarily partly, but in large part, because we won't have any teachers. We are heading straight into a gigantic, it's a nuclear bomb that is sitting on our education system, which is that we aren't recruiting. The government has not hit its recruitment targets for 13 years in a row. So we don't have enough teachers. Teachers are leaving. So retention rates are increasing. Young teachers and inexperienced teachers are leaving at unprecedented rates. And we are we're witnessing a population bulge as well. There's a little bulge that's moving through the school years, which means that we're actually not going to have enough teachers to put in front of these kids. And there's no way that, that can't have a negative effect on results. So I appreciate your uh, fairly emphatic curb on my enthusiasm for, uh, <laughs> for UK education. I still think it's fascinating. And I think you're right to do that. Finland is a great example, right? Finland had great PISA scores for a little while. Everyone clamored to copy the finished model when in fact there are a lot of non-educational reasons for why Finland achieved the temporary bump that they did. And when they tried to double down and a lot of the things that they said were driving the results, the results went down. So even if my hypothesis was right, we should proceed with caution. And I hear you saying that the hypothesis might not be right, but I would love to talk a little bit about some of the similarities and differences. And one of the primary differences that strikes me between the UK education system and the American education system is what the assessment of outcomes looks like. So in the UK, the primary endpoint assessment, as I understand it, is GCSEs. And in a minute, I'm going to let you explain what those are and how they work. In the US, well, there isn't really any sort of tests that you take that demonstrates your readiness for university. There used to be the SAT, which was really wasn't a measure of what you learned in school. It was a it's an IQ test. Yeah, it was. It's a proxy for what you might have learned. It focuses only on math and on reading. It doesn't talk about the sciences or history, or any of the subject areas. And now we really don't even have that because most universities don't take it. And of course, there's a little bit more students are more of a stakeholder in their GCSE results. So could, do you mind just talking about the GCSEs? What are they? How do they work? How do your students in your different schools experience them as students? Yeah, so I'm not quite sure what the comparable age point is and, and how it transfers in the US, but around the age of 14, students will move from kind of a, a key stage three curriculum, which is meant to be a broad and balanced curriculum offer that covers creative subjects, core subjects, English, maths, science, history, geography, languages. And sort of age 14, they narrow that kind of broadness a little bit and they, they make some choices about subjects that they would want to study. So 
Some things are compulsory. So English, both language and literature, science and maths are compulsory. Schools then kind of are able to be a bit more flexible in terms of what other GCSEs they might offer. So do students have choice also? So you offer an array of GCSEs to your school, but then as a student, I get to decide whether I want to take economics or... Yeah, so you get kind of a group that you have to do and a group that you can choose from. In some schools, the the choice is, is much wider. Some will offer a very traditional academic curriculum and your history, geography, languages. Some schools narrow that quite significantly for students. So they say you have to take a language. In some schools, it's optional. So there's a variety of different kind of models of the 14 to 16 curriculum. It does allow for student choice and it does allow them to specialise a little bit more in things that they are kind of more drawn to, more interested to, and more relevant to their kind of careers and aspirations sort of post-16, post-18. How many GCSDs does a typical student take in your school? Some schools is eight, some schools is nine. I would say is the average. Our school is nine. So at our school, every student does maths, every student does two English, every student does two in science. Every student does PRE, so a religious education, and then they have three to choose from. So they can choose from, this is our menu, which is geography, history, computer science, design and technology, food, music, physical education, Spanish, French, drama, art, photography, uh, health and social care, and additional science as well. So there's quite a lot them to choose from. I mean, this is fascinating to me, just if I'm a design and technology teacher or an art teacher or a French teacher, in the UK, suddenly I feel a lot more important in the sense that like your work never gets measured. If you're in the US and you're a science teacher or a history teacher or a foreign language teacher, the only assessment we have basically is reading and math. And so, you know, what gets measured becomes often what's important. It's a much wider range of things that get measured. I assume that students are accountable for their GCSE results because they determine whether their university placements. Schools are also accountable for for GCSE results, though. Yeah. So to step back just a a little bit, all of those GCSEs count towards the school's overall headline measure, which is called Progress 8, which we mentioned before, but now is a good time to explain it because the rest won't make sense until, until I do this. Perfect. Let's go. So essentially, Progress 8 is about measuring a student's performance from a baseline. So let's imagine you took a student at age 11. So you're sixth grade, okay? They then start, so in, in, in the US, they're still in middle school, in sixth grade. So we don't have a middle school. We have primary schools and secondary schools. We do have a couple of middle schools here or there, but broadly, primaries and secondaries. Primaries finish at fifth grade. And at sixth grade, they then move into their secondaries. At the end of fifth grade in their primaries, they do baseline assessments in maths and English. So let's say you've got this one student and you clone them, okay? So you clone this student. And let's say they've got a score of 100 in their grade five exam. One goes to one school and the other goes to another school. They then do the next five years of compulsory education, which culminates in their GCSEs. Student one, GCSEs are graded from nine to one, nine being the highest, one being the lowest. Student one gets, does eight GCSEs and gets a grade five in all of them. Student two, who's identical, does eight GCSEs and gets a grade four in all of them. If that was the case for all of the students in those schools, the progress rate of the first school, where the kid got fives, compared to the second school, would be plus one. Because that school has added one grade to every single one of that student's subjects. So what we do is we do this across an entire population. You look at every single student, there's typically 600,000 students in a given cohort. 
you look at every student, you look at their fifth grade outcomes, you look at what they got at GCSE, and you compare like with like. So you say, right, out of all the students who got 105 in their fifth grade assessments, what did they all get in their GCSE assessments? And let's work out a score for the school overall. The problem comes when you calculate that score. So it's, it's a little bit complicated, but broadly, maths and English are weighted higher. So if a student does better in maths, that contributes more to the school's outcomes than if they did well in science or French. And then there's also a more complicated system. It's called the bucket system, which we don't need to get into. But broadly, what it means is that nationally, some subjects are considered a bit less important. And over time, what has happened, and there are also political and sociological reasons for this. But over time, for example, language entries have fallen. When I gave you that list of all the subjects that we offer, we are very lucky that we can do that. But most, not most, but many schools won't be able to offer that full range of subjects to the students and will have to, by necessity, narrow their choice. You know, and let's say, for example, we have one teacher who teaches photography. Let's say she leaves and we can't replace her. We can't offer photography anymore. It's that simple. So it's better in the sense that, yes, that those subjects do count. It's worse in that they count a bit less and things like maths and English can sometimes be overemphasized. But it does mean that the school is held to account for all of that. And that is, you know, when Amy said that the, the, the grade, sixth grade, seventh grade and eighth grade, they study the national curriculum, which is broad and balanced. That is also compulsory. Right. It's statutory. So it works a little bit differently in some schools, but broadly across the country, every student is doing that. And that's a good thing, but there is no accountability at the end of that. The accountability comes two years later. So if I'm a student and I'm studying geography and I'm in eighth grade and I know that I'm not taking geography for my GCSEs, well, I don't feel the need to do any work because I don't care. There's no exam, there's no assessment, it's not going to go on any kind of record or whatever. So I might just give up there and then and not engage with my lessons at all. So there are always, with all of these things, there's advantages, disadvantages, mitigations, limitations, etc. One of the primary differences between assessment, the tests that you're describing in the UK and tests in the US is that, generally speaking, in the UK, students know what's going to be on the test. That it's a test of knowledge, whether you have mastered the national curriculum versus our state tests, which are usually given in grades three through eight. You don't know, especially in the reading test, you don't know what it's, you know, it's a skills test. And so you, you don't know and can't prepare for what's going to be on the test. And students are in no way accountable for their, are not especially accountable for their results, right? So if you do poorly on the eighth grade test, nothing really happens to you. There's no real incentive for you to work hard at it. I'm looking at your faces as I paint this glowing picture of the GCSE system, which is broad across the curriculum and measures knowledge and invests students as stakeholders. And I'm not seeing the same level of rah-rah enthusiasm from you two. <laughs> so tell me how you feel about, about the GCSEs and the resulting progress eight measures. You don't seem enthusiastic as I described them to you. No, I, I am quite enthusiastic about the model. I think there are some things of it that are really good. I really like the fact that students can um, have some autonomy over their education and make some choices around what they want to do. As Adam said, that can like lower down, that can cause real issues where students don't have, like you talk about the carrot and the stick, they haven't got anything to work towards. And sometimes that can really affect their motivation. So I would just say that every, almost every class in the US is that way. Yeah. Whereas everything we're doing is like, look, this is, this is the qualification that opens the doors to the next stage of your life. 
this is why it matters this is what this is what's going to open the doors and that is that is a huge factor a lot of my job in school is is working with students with sort of behavioral issues and, and pastoral issues and being able to use that as the thing that we're all focused on it unites us because we want the best for them we want the doors to open and not having that as you're sort of explaining with the, the system in the US, that would shake me to my core, not being able to, I wouldn't know how else to do a lot of my job without that. Yeah, I think Amy is generally more positive about our education system than I am, because Amy has a bit of a crush on a man called Michael Gove. So Michael Gove is a conservative politician who is responsible for a lot of the education reforms that happened here between 2010 and 2014, 15-ish. The conservatives, just for those who are listening, are like, Republican-ish, and Labour are the other big party, which are Democrat-ish. And I have deep ethical, moral, spiritual, and political issues with the Conservatives on account of them being the absolute flotsam uh, that is floating on this vast ocean of human filth. Don't pull any punches on the show, Adam. Just because, <laughs> just because it's a podcast. Where was I? So, so I think I think our system is really good in theory. So, so for example, that thing that we were talking about with the students being more likely to work for it because it means something. And you're like, yeah, but that's that's a very adult thing to think. Um, you know, literally this week on on Tuesday, I was walking down the corridor and one of my colleagues was having an argument with a student who's in year 11, so 10th grade. He's got his GCSEs in four months' time. And because, you know, this teacher's kicked the kid out because the, the student is refusing to work, right? It's just not putting pen to paper. And I said to my colleague, I said, do you, do you want me to pick this up? And he was like, yeah, I've got a class to deal with. If he's ready, if he can work, then he can come back in. If he's not going to work, please take him somewhere else. And like, I'm talking to this kid and this kid's like, I hate history. I just hate it. And, and I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like it just, it's so irrelevant whether or not you like history right now, because fundamentally you have a GCSE, you need to get the GCSE. If you don't get the GCSE, you're not going to get into your college. But like in his head, that he's a child, you know, he's 15 years old, that he's not necessarily capable of thinking that far down the tracks. So, and, and the idea like, you know, I think what's really interesting that you said that our assessments test knowledge to an extent that's true, but Amy will tell you that the English language assessment, for example, that all students in the country sit and counts towards their GCSE and the school's progress aid does not test knowledge. Don't you know, though, generally speaking, you generally know what text? No, this is the English language. The language one, which is one of the, the biggies, it is a skills-based test. It isn't English language as a subject. It isn't, there is no, like, if bloke, when I talk to um, my cousin's a, a physics teacher in the same school as me, and she'll talk about, like, the spec and the things that they're, they're teaching in physics. And I'm, she's like, what's on yours? And I'm like, there isn't anything on the English language one. What is on the English language? Is it, is it a writing test? Is it a grammar test? Is yeah, it a so creative writing test. So half of it is a piece of forced creative writing in 45 minutes, because that's all the best. Nothing could be more joyful. Yeah, that's how all the best writers work. Um, the other part of it is um, writing nonfiction. I mean, to be honest, as a writer, a bit of a deadline does help. But, yeah, but you, you don't get away with just staring at a blank screen in an exam and saying, well, this counts as writing, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is what normal writing is like. And even in, even in science, which is you know more knowledge heavy, there's still stuff in there. Well, the first thing is there's too much knowledge. It's a stupid course. It's, you know, it contains way, way, way too much content. And you know, granted, there are debates about what should go in and what shouldn't go in. There's a load of stuff in there that just should not be in the curriculum. There's no point in it being there. It's not interesting. It's not exciting. It's not meaningful. It's not relevant. And the point is there are things that you can choose that are like that. So why not choose those? So we have an overstuffed curriculum that's full of things that students 
that aren't relevant or important. And then there's also stuff that's, you know, weird in the exam. Like, for example, you know, we talk about like command words, which are where there's like a hoop you've got to jump through in the assessment to get a mark. Like, for example, it might say, evaluate the use of aluminium or copper as for wires, right? Now, if if you don't, if you say aluminium has X properties and Y properties and Z properties, whereas copper has, you know, A, B and C properties, you're limited in terms of your marks because the word evaluate means include a judgment. So you have to say, overall, I think blah, 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 which is just, it's just nonsense. And it's, it's, it's like completely crazy. And there's loads of stuff like this where what ends up happening, and I've been ranting about this quite a bit recently, what ends up happening is that the curriculum, you have what's called a specification, which is what Amy mentioned before, the spec, which is what you're supposed to teach the students. But if you really want to know what you're supposed to teach the students, you have to go to the old exam papers and look in the mark schemes. And what that means is that the curriculum doesn't really inhere in those curriculum documents. It inheres in the old exam papers, which is just dumb. There's a promulgated curriculum and an assessed curriculum, and you have to know the difference between the two. Yeah, the English language GCSE is just a, a test on how to answer the exam question. What about the English literature question? There are books that everyone reads. There are genres that everyone reads. Tell me a little bit about the literature GCSE. Yeah, so the literature GCSE is much better, in my opinion. We have kind of traditional set texts. It's all the greats that you would expect to see um, on an English literature GCSE. So yeah. That was written by a conservative government. <laughs> yes. no, but, like, like, but seriously, yeah, like you don't have to be like some crazy, hippie, wokey-dokey kind of guy to think that there should be something that isn't, you know, we've got, it's two Shakespeare's, one piece of 19th century British literature, and what's and the fourth is one piece of 20th century, again, text in English language. And normally, what do schools pick? They pick Romeo and Juliet, they pick Macbeth, they pick an inspector cause, they pick Animal Farm. Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, stuff like that. And it's like, you know, would it be that bad to put in something that's a bit more modern or a bit more diverse or representative? I mean, fair point, but there is no book that you can assume that everyone has read in the United States because there's no shared curriculum. So you couldn't walk into a 12th grade English classroom and say, oh, how is this play similar to Macbeth? And presume that pretty much everyone is, if they haven't read Macbeth, they've read some Shakespeare and like there's no, there's no uniformity at all. Right, but we don't, we don't have that either, right? Because you can choose a Shakespeare or two, sorry, two Shakespeare's. So you have to be prepared on the exam. You have to be prepared to write about a Shakespearean play. Yeah, yeah exactly. And most schools will pick Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth. Yeah. I mean, you could do worse. You could do better, but you could do worse. I, I completely agree. You know, I think I, I, I think every, all of those six texts that I named, I think are brilliant texts. Yeah, I think they are. I genuinely think they're, they're fantastic. But there are loads of brilliant texts. And the idea that it just has to be from this particular, I don't want to use the word canon because I know that's really loaded in American discourse, but like... Everything is loaded in American discourse. So you're free to use the word on, on, on this podcast. Well, I've already given a shout out to Joe Biden. So you've just lost about a million followers. I do appreciate <laughs> that. Okay, now that your shout out to Joe Biden reminds me of where I want to go next because I want to give the podcast a utopian dystopian turn at the same time, which is here's the dystopian part, particularly for you, Adam, but I'm going to let Amy answer first, which is Michael Gove is elected prime minister <gasps> next year. And he nominates you as education minister. I, that's not really possible, but like, so he, this is the fusion. This is the utopian dystopian fusion, which is you have the power to make change, even though you've been appointed by Michael Gove. That's just kind of my little twist of the twist. Of the, so your first mandate is to make adjustments to the GCSE system 
so it is more optimal. So you each get to make two changes, and Amy, you can go first. Well, Adam stews in the misery of of whether he's going to even take the job. The first would be reviewing the scope of what the size of the GCSE courses. So they're too ambitious. Yeah, for all of its strengths and its weaknesses. There is a huge amount to cover. You talk to other subject disciplines, the same is true. And I think stepping back and reviewing it and looking at what we could do less of but do it better would strengthen that. I would also want to look at the way that Progress 8 and the accountability measures influence the curriculum offers for young people. Because what we've done really well at in this country is increasing expectations, expecting all students to study academic learning. And that's a real strength. And can I say educational outcomes are much more equitable in the UK than in the US. The gap between high and low is much smaller, yeah. but still big. It's still, it's still big. Yeah, it's still a problem. True. Appreciate you bringing in the downside there. <laughs> Every silver lining has its very own cloud. Let's not get sunny here. It does kind of tie into where I was going with that because there are... Some students who would benefit from having more variety of some vocational offers, some things that are slightly more specialist provision alongside a good chunk of academic options. You know, if students who, for whatever reason, have really significant send or students who get to 16 who, despite everything that we've tried to do, still can't read, there's a gap for some young people. And what it's meaning is that they're getting these courses that just aren't quite right for them as an individual and you multiply that across the country i think addressing that would improve their education experience so what might you add high quality academic vocational options to be counted in the school accountability league tables progress calculations adam what about for you well i'm refusing the job so <laughs> <laughs> i called that amy i called um, I, I think it's a really difficult question i think just quickly to commentate on amy's answers I completely agree about the reduction in scope of the GCSEs. So, for example, in science, which, again, is my home subject, I could very easily just destroy 40% of the course uh, and replace it with an additional 20% of stuff that's a bit more relevant and important. So you end up with, of course, it is 80% of the size, but with more stuff that's you know meaningful. So I completely agree with that. On the vocational stuff, again, I agree. It's just a very difficult policy lever to have. And part of the reason why we have a situation where we don't have vocational courses is because the schools were entering their students for like the European driving license qualification, which you could do in a day and stuff like that. So it's about finding a way and of making sure that students don't lower their aspirations for students and enter them into you know bogus qualifications. So you want to protect the rigor of the system. Yeah, the expectation, because too many schools for too long have had low standards of their students and have said, well, he can't do this. Well, she can't do it. So anyway, if there were two things that I could choose, the first thing would be, the first thing was going to be something that I have now forgotten. It must have been crucial. But the second thing is actually to, to reject the premise of the question, because I don't think the thing that would make the biggest difference in schools in the UK at the moment would be GC. Oh, no, I remember what it was. Yes, wait, wait, wait. I remember what it was. Sorry, I'm going to go okay. back. I was, I was on a soapbox and everything. Um, no, the first thing I remember now is I always get told off by assessment experts for saying this, but they can never really explain to me why I'm wrong which is basically when you set a standardized assessment for a large population, by and large, the assessment orthodoxy is to have a, you have to have a normal distribution and the average mark is ordinarily around the 
So the overwhelming majority of students are getting somewhere between 40 and 60%. That is the way that assessments are built and designed. And that's almost one of the defining characteristics in modern assessment parlance of what makes a good assessment. The flip side of that is that it's utterly soul-destroying for students. You have to get a lot wrong to have it be statistically valid. Correct. You look at these papers and the kids are going through them and they're working through an exam and they're like, well, I don't know that, I don't know that, I don't know that, I don't know that. And I'm like, it doesn't matter because nobody else does either. It's horrible and awful. And everyone keeps, you know, I, people tell me I'm stupid for saying this because I don't understand how assessments work. But the onus is on those other people to explain to me why it has to be 50%. People talk about, well, you've got to distinguish between the top end. But we don't distinguish between the top end anyway, because once you've got a nine, you've got a nine, right? You can have 70% and a nine and 80% and have a nine, and you've not been distinguished between. So if it were me, I would do some serious like research academic uh, pencil, you know, over your ear type work, get the boffins in the room and figure out a way of making it so that you can have higher percentages so that, that it's a bit more... It's less soul-destroying for the students who are taking the exams. Even if you gave up some statistical reliability? The exams are long enough, and there's enough students that I'm reasonably confident you know, you can make it work. That's the one thing that I would do. And if you've got, if Daniel Koretz is listening to this, his toes are curling as we speak. Uh, the, <laughs> the second thing then is to get back on my soapbox. There are other things that would make a bigger difference to the UK education system than GCSE reform. And like, there's the extent to which we are stretched thin is a serious barrier on success. The extent to which leaders in schools across the country have literally no idea what they're doing is a big barrier to success. Getting high quality training out there is a barrier to success. Um, working with schools to improve behavior policies is a barrier to success. You know, Not having that social security net that we spoke about, the fact that our attendance across the country this year is down 8% is all of these things are a bigger barrier to success than any fiddling that we can do in GCSEs. That's not to say fiddling on the GCSEs isn't important, but there are other things which I think that will be higher up on my list. Point taken. Fair enough. It's knowledge, work, and human capital, honoring teachers, finding the right teachers, supporting teachers is job number one to you. I mean, yeah, but you, look, you do training here and you know this as well as I do, that when you go and you ask a teacher what is cold call and they don't know, right? Well, forget reforming GCSE, forget anything. I have to teach you how to do a cold call, but you've been teaching for 10 years and you're not doing cold call. You don't know how to do a cold call and it doesn't increase your workload. It doesn't make your life any harder, but it will make your lessons better. But if you don't have the GCSE, then it's very easy to say, look, that's just not how I do it. And I have no incentive to try doing something more rigorous in my classroom because I don't get measured. But like any measurement is going to be flawed. But I would say the GCSE is a much more effective, I don't think I've convinced you, a much more effective measurement tool than what we have in the US. I'm agreeing with you for sure. But again, I just want to call it to listeners that Adam is nodding as he says this. <laughs> Adam is nodding. It's not an enthusiastic nod, but it is a nod. I am agreeing. But historically, <laughs> we've had a big problem. And it's, you know, it's happening less and less now, which is good, which teachers in their performance management every year have had three targets. And target one was always a database target, which is that every student in my class achieves as a particular grade or whatever. But the relationship between teacher and the grades that a student gets is not a straight line. Uh, it's not clear, it's curvy, it's wavy, it's, it's a complete mess. So I would argue that what really motivates teachers is not the accountability of a GCSE at the end, but you know the model that I try to use of teacher improvement is much more micro than that. It's you didn't use a cold call, and when I asked this student what you said, they didn't know, right? So it's not, I'm not talking about, you know, you're going to get worse history GCSE results at the end of the year. I'm just saying you love your children, you love your subject, you want them to learn, but and, and the things that you are saying are good, but the students aren't listening to them. 
So I think for me, in my experience, that's a much more powerful driver of change than this GCSE, which is a million miles away and is not, you know, hugely dependent on you anyway. And if I remember correctly, Doug, when you did, when you were researching and finding out who your champion teachers were, you were using five-year value-added schools, right? So you were looking at how they were performing across a long time, as opposed to this GCSE snapshot. You know, if you looked at my GCSE results, I've taught our, you know, what we call a bottom set for years on end, right? And you would not, I, you know, I don't think I'm a better than average teacher, but you wouldn't even identify me as an average teacher because the classes that I teach have poor results. You know, my, my year 11s last year, my 10th grade, my GCSE students, I had 60% attendance across the course of the year, right? No one, no one can hang their results over my head. I did what I could. I worked as hard as I could, but you just can't. So it's, it's a complicated picture. Okay. I'm going to take a different tack to try and convince you that <laughs> things are rosier in the UK than they are here, though maybe not. I mean, you're doing a fine job of, of throwing water on my argument. <laughs> but one of the things that my colleagues and I talk about constantly is the professional knowledge of UK teachers when we train in the UK. And this is, this is just a quotation that a head teacher said to us when we were leaving a workshop. She said, you can't do a teacher training course in this country and not come out of it without an understanding of retrieval practice, working memory, and the role of knowledge in reading. That teacher training, I'm sure you'll, we will find flaws in it, but the commitment to professional knowledge and a research base and a science base in teaching, I would say, is far ahead in the UK than it is here. Agree, disagree, or build. Amy, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I'm coming at this from the perspective of somebody who trained when it really wasn't like that. I refer to it as the dark times because there was no training in anything like that. Um, we were trained more in how to be kind of children's entertainers. We weren't really trained in how to teach, how knowledge works. None of that. Kids aren't paying attention. Try a plenary. Yeah, <laughs> or like maybe dress up as like Banquo's ghost and see if that engages them. It was that sort of really low quality pedagogy that we were being trained in. Which only works, by the way, if they know who Banquo's ghost is. When I look now at what our trainee teachers study and our early career teachers, the difference in the quality and the content is astronomical. So we're talking polar opposites. And I look at that and I go, if only I knew that 15 years ago, because the first week of my career, I would have been a far better teacher had I known what teachers know now. What I would say is that I don't think that is a whole scale outcome yet. There are still a lot of teachers who won't know about those things that are on early career teachers training. Not every early career teacher is um, successful or is able to take what they've learned and, and apply that to their training. And you can walk into a lot of schools and say, right, what's retrieval practice? And 90% of teaching staff wouldn't know. So I hear moderate, grudging, moderate enthusiasm there, certainly yes. compared to where things have been. And let me just toss it to Adam for the rebuttal then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with Amy. I think, I think there have been improvements. Like if you go online, so Amy and I have given up recommending X, formerly known as Twitter, because it's an awful place. If you do go online, the stuff that is now considered normal discourse in the English education system is heretical in the States. So when you look at guys like Zach Groschel, who is, you know, constantly tweeting things that are perfectly orthodox in England, like children should behave or children should know things, stuff like that. And it's just getting mobbed. Yes. You can assume that you will be attacked for that in the US. Correct. Whereas that did happen to us, but it happened 10 years ago. 
and things have slowly moved in a different direction. And then that was a bottom-up movement that resulted in top-down change. So Michael Gove and his chums were reading all of these discussions. They were reading all of these blogs. Could you call them cronies rather than chums? Cronies, yeah, definitely cronies. Um, acolytes, <laughs> neophytes, that kind of stuff. Um, but they were reading blogs. <laughs> yeah, Amy. They were reading blogs by, probably groupie is a better word for Amy. They were reading blogs by people like Tom Bennett and Andrew Old. And Dan that, Willingham. And Dan Willingham, yeah. And that was kind of, and Daisy, Daisy Christodoulou at the time as well. Carl Hendrick, Alex Quigley, all of these guys. And that was driving the debate both bottom up and then it turned top down with the training reforms. Having said that, of course, you know, you can't just wave a magic wand and expect things to happen magically. And there are different stakeholders in the training of a teacher, which will have a massive impact. So yes, there is the curriculum, but also there's the in-school mentor, the school culture in general, and their university partner or training provider. And any one of those could be a weak link. And because those people were trained in the old method, then why would you assume that they're not a weak link? I'll give you one example. I went to a school in Kent. Now, Kent is where we still have grammar schools. So it's partially selective in Kent. So the brighter kids go to some schools. They're still state schools. And everybody else goes to these you know, state schools that aren't selective. Listeners in the US should imagine Westchester County when you're... Great, Westchester County. And I remember I did a session with the trainees in lunch. And I asked for them to come along with their mentors. And these kids, you know, I call them kids, I'm only 33 years old, but like they're 21, they're 22, and like they're full of energy, they're full of beans, they've got presence, they've got charisma, they're working hard, and they've picked up a couple of strategies here or there from their training. Their mentors have not got a clue, like literally not an idea. And, you know, so whereas these kids are like, oh, I know about cold call, we do it like this. Or yes, mini whiteboards, they're great, I like to use those. Their mentors are like, I don't know what these guys are talking about. And we're like now like, you know, at this point, they were five months into their training or something. And I'm like, you can't accelerate the progress of a teacher if the in-school mentor doesn't really know much, doesn't engage with the process. And, you know, we have, we have, we're very blessed at our school. We take the training very seriously. And we're lucky to have really strong mentors. And I, I was observing a teacher who, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky. I get to go and observe lessons up and down the country. So I'm in school three days a week. I get to go to other schools the rest of the time. I see 300 lessons a year. And um, I've normally got high leverage feedback for a teacher within a minute of being in the room, within a minute. And I don't say that like, that's because of experience, right? I've been doing this for a long time. There's a, a trainee that I'm mentoring at the moment in school. She's been teaching for one and a bit years. And I'm like scratching my head, right? I'm sat there for 20 minutes and I'm like, God, what am I going to, I'm struggling to find stuff. You know, we have, a, we have a trainee who's been teaching for two or three months. And I'm like, she is just unbelievable, right? She. She's been teaching for two or three months and she's better than I was at six years, right? But that is, honestly, it's a joy. This is a good thing. It's an absolute joy. It's, abs you know, there's, there's nothing that makes me happier, full of pride and optimism and hope, but it is not a universal picture. I'm going to end us on that note of pride, optimism and hope. That's not the average. That is definitely, that is definitely not the average across the show. <laughs> I thought I was going to get you, but I think you ran down my parade pretty successfully. Next, if I convince you guys to come back, we didn't get to talk about Ofsted and school inspections because that's another major difference. There are lots of other things that we can talk about. But this has been uh, fascinating and insightful and a great first tour of 
English Education for Americans. So Amy Forrester and Adam Boxer, thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.